Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in French Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest in this episode is Susan Mockberry, the author of The Persian Mirror, French Reflections of the Safavid Empire in Early Modern France. And the book was published by Oxford University Press in 2019. Hi there, Susan. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So, Susan, before we get started talking about your wonderful, beautiful, just before we were recording, I was saying it's such a beautiful object, your book. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about where you are and how you've been doing over the course of this I don't know, has it been a year, a decade of global pandemic and just craziness in the world in general? Yeah, well, I'm doing fine. And um, my family and I have survived and gone through it pretty well and just trying to work and at a slower pace. But all is well. Well, I'm glad to hear it. And you're at Rutgers Camden, Susan? Yes, I'm an associate professor at Rutgers Camden in the history department, and I work on French encounters in the early modern world Mm -hmm. and teach courses on that. Shout out to Rutgers, where I did my PhD, not at Camden, but same family, basically. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So Susan, can you tell us how you got interested in working on early modern France and the Persian Empire? Yes. So as an undergraduate, I was studying French. I was a French major and a political science major. And then I met my future husband, who happens to be Iranian. And I realized I have to learn that beautiful language his family speaks. And so I started taking Farsi classes Mm -hmm. and took on a minor in Near Eastern languages and cultures. And I started noticing all these connections between France and Iran or Persia, um, of course, because I'm studying both of them, both languages. And so I became really intrigued to how these connections came to be, considering, you know, France was never really in Iran as much as Britain or any other country or Russia. So it was, it was just curious about these connections. 
And then this project sort of emerged as your, was this your dissertation? Yes. Then um, when I went to graduate school um, to do French history, um, you know, I really wanted to use my Farsi and really wanted to explore these connections. So yeah, this is how it came to be as a dissertation. Exactly. Well, it's a really wonderful book and it, you know, looks at images of Persia and the Persian empire in France in the early modern period. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind and something that you address in the introduction to the book is the way that this project fits into the kind of broader, not just historiographic, but like scholarly, intellectual, political field of Orientalism. So we may as well, let's just do that now. <laughs> let's just talk about, um, you know, how you see your work in relationship to the field of, of Orientalism and Orientalist studies. Uh, if that's, do people say Orientalist studies? Yes, definitely. Yes. Yeah, so, um, yeah. So, yeah, that's a good question that we should really deal with right off the bat. So, and was really something that I thought about for years, you know, how to deal with this relationship between France and Persia and how does like Edward Said's uh, Orientalism fit in with this particular relationship. So the thing is, I found that Orientalism worked in many ways, the theory for the relationship in terms of the way French men viewed Persia uh, was distorted and was self-referential. I mean, it was more about the French than it was about the Persians in many ways, right? So in that respect, I found Edward Said's theory to be right on. But then there were a lot of ways that it didn't fit mm. quite right. In um, Really, it's not about power in the 17th century, right? So Edward uh, Said hinges Orientalism on this power dynamic, right, where the Occident has power over uh, the Orient. And in the, in the 17th century, I mean, France is in no position to go into Persia and is begging to even trade with Persia. And, you know, Persia is just seen as this grand superior almost empire, definitely. So um, that, you know, there's no mm. colonial aspect there yet. So that was one way that it didn't quite fit. And then the other thing is, I wanted to get away from this idea of a monolithic Orient. For example, when I was looking at the connections between France and Persia, of course, mm -hmm. Montesquieu's Persian letters, you know, is the big, big text that we think about. And um, all the explanations about Montesquieu's Persian letters hinges around the Ottoman Empire and Ottoman studies. I'm like, well, Persia is not the Ottomans. He's talking about Persia, right? So, you know, so it's this idea that um, scholars have that, you know, when Montesquieu's talking about Ottoman Empire, it just subs in for any place in the Orient, mm. right? So I wanted to correct that. And also the idea that there's one monolithic Occident, that, you know, it doesn't matter if you're French or English or German, uh, all Europeans viewed all the Orient the same way. And what I found is the relationship between France and Persia was very different than that of England to Persia mm -hmm. or Germany to Persia, right? And things change. So that's where I kind of um, separated from Edward Said's theory. Mm -hmm. there. So 
the title of the book is In Early Modern France. Well, it's not the entire title of the book. The part of the title that I'm going to focus on right now is In Early Modern France. So let's talk a little bit about the kind of chronological scope of the project. You mentioned Montesquieu, 1721. Is that, am I right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, I actually, it's, it's just funny that in just before preparing for this interview, I happened to be reorganizing my bookshelf and I had to read the Persian letters in my first year of college and I have my copy of it still. You mentioned that title and, you know, talk about the 17th century. So how did you kind of make a decision to focus on the 17th century and then the period leading up to, to the publication of the Persian letters? And yeah, what's the, what are the chronological bounds of the project? Yeah, as I mentioned before, you know, there's not a lot of direct connections and relations between France and Persia. They're always kind of blocked by the Ottoman Empire, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I was just trying to figure out why would Montesquieu pick Persia? Because that had not really been looked at. It's, as I said, it's uh, the, the answers were always, well, the Ottomans, you know, and uh, the French have this relationship with the Ottomans. And, you know, so that didn't, do it for me. And so, you know, I thought there must be more to the story. So I started investigating the relationship that Frenchmen had with Persians going backward from Montesquieu's Persian letters, basically. And I found this really long and interesting history that even though there were no direct relations, like early in the 17th century, uh, late 16th century, France was being fed lots of information through translations um, from other countries that were in a a closer relationship to Persia, like uh, the Portuguese, the Italians, you know, they were writing about Persia and um, especially at the Portuguese, I should say. And they were sending uh, missionaries there who were writing about it. And then we have the English who sent some diplomats uh, like Anthony Shirley. So anyway, all of this was being translated and sent to France. Mm -hmm. So I started with that um, in the early 17th century and built up to Montesquieu and found that then there's this relationship that Louis XIV has. And basically, Louis XIV's reign opens with this painting, Darius's Queens at the Feet of Alexander in 1661, uh, this representation of him with Persia, and then closes with in 1715 with this grand embassy, this visit of the Persian ambassador. So I really felt like that built a good history for Montesquieu. Throughout the book, Susan, you make this argument about Persia from the perspective of the French being exotic, but also being familiar in terms of the material luxury of the Persian empire and Persian culture, this idea of like civilization and civility and, you know, how grand the empire and Persian culture are. Can you talk a little bit about that tension between the exoticism, but also the kind of identification and familiarity? This tension was, yeah, hard to work out in some ways because at first, you know, in this project, of course, Persia is just seemingly exotic, right, to Frenchmen. But um, they were drawing these connections, especially when it came to civility. And uh, this was very important to Frenchmen, right, to the the French identity. And um, what I found particularly interesting is in the early 17th century, when these 
manuals, these handbooks are very popular in France of how to behave, manuals of, you know, how to be a good, uh, we can call it the honnête homme, you know, the perfect gentleman, Mm. we can say, Um, although not necessarily a courtier, um, they saw Persians in the same light. They saw Persians much like themselves as, and um, I'm still seeing this over and over that they refer to Persians as honnête homme themselves. They, they are them, you know, here they're, they're exotic and very different, but at the same time, they're familiar. And a lot of this is the French imagination, right? They're looking at Persians and drawing out what is familiar to them. Mm. Most of the travelers will say over and over how they're more civil and more polite than, let's say, the Ottomans. Mm. Okay. Now, not that, of course, this is necessarily true. They were, you know, judging them on some basis, um, some qualities that, you know, were that spoke to them, right? This tension I found particularly interesting with the material culture. You know, at first, when I looked at the images of the Persian ambassador, Mohammed Mereza Beg, who visits Louis XIV in 1715, the images showcase him as being, at first glance, exotic, right? Smoking his pipe, taking his bath, drinking his exotic coffee. But then, you know, on, on further analysis, you know, the French were drinking some coffee, and they knew about that water pipe for some time from travel literature. Mm. And, you know, baths were uncommon, but elites did have them. So, you know, it, it brought to mind that what was going on here, that, um, you know, they're, they're putting these exotic elements in uh, as showcasing the bag as this kind of foreigner. But at the same time, they're honing in on symbols that they were familiar with. They weren't that exotic. Mm. So he didn't look like an alien, in other words. They could relate to him, even though he was exotic. So I found that really interesting. Well, in the title of the book, Susan, um, and then throughout, you use this image of the mirror. And you know, just what we were just talking about makes me want to ask you. I mean, it seems like a kind of straightforward uh, way of talking about this relationship that Persia is a mirror, but it's actually quite complicated the way you are using mirror throughout the project as something that reflects that. I mean, in some ways, it's like when you talk about the Ottoman Empire, it's like, is there like a sort of like a, a, a side mirror <laughs> that's like deflecting what's happening or the perspective on the Ottomans that's also in the Persian mirror? Um, so, yeah, could you talk a little bit about that image for you, that metaphor and how it it runs through the project as something that you come back to again and again. Yes, I'm so glad you asked this question. And this relates kind of to what we we're talking about with Orientalism. Mm-hmm. So writing the introduction and re- working on this project and, you know, the other comes up, this notion of the other, of course, right, is Persia an other. And I had a lot of problems with calling it an other because it connotes negativity, right? Um, And this uh, uh, imbalance of power and stresses difference. So I I felt like the Persian uh, relationship with France was not just about another. It was more complex in some ways than that. And so I was trying to find a model that suited it and that could be used perhaps for other relationships. Um, You know, I, I propose this at the end that 
relationships between two countries, like uh, between an Asian country and a European country, have so many different facets, mm. right? So how do we deal with this um, rather than just assuming, you know, the European country is trying to colonize the other, you know, something like this or patronizing the other, right? So, I mean, there is a little bit of that. But there's so much more going on as well, where um, the mirror to me presented a way of showing how complex the comparisons could be. Mm-hmm. And they could be both positive and both negative. So at every point, all the texts and all the material culture I deal with, there's a positive aspect where they praise Persia, but then there's a negative one as well that they can use and turn around to critique France with. Mm-hmm. Now, the other thing that I was noticing is getting away from this idea again of, as I said, the monolithic Orient, the monolithic Occident, right? And I wanted to get at these different layers of using the mirror, if, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. So the mirror to me is a distorting one. And it depends on who you are, if you're French, if you're English, right? Um, viewing Persia, you're going to have a different reflection, we can say, right? And then also within France, it depends who you are in France, what your goal is, how you're going to use the Persian mirror, we can say, Mm -hmm. right? Um, To what end? And then also the particular moment. So chronologically, we say, we see politics changes in France, culture changes in France over these hundred years that the book examines. And so Persia changes with that. Well, let's talk more about, you know, how you get at that, like the stuff that's in the book, the sources, the, you know, the historical voices that you're accessing here through different types of materials. You know, you've got pamphlets and literature and diplomatic documents, like all these different things. So could you talk a little bit about your collection of materials, sources, you know, written, visual, like in a kind of general sense, we'll zoom in on a couple of things, but you know, what that process was like, any challenges or kind of highlights that you want to share with us? Yes, that, that's a great question. So I, I started with uh, the visit of Mohammed Raza Beg to the court of Louis XIV in 1715. This was kind of a large base of sources, uh, a rich source, this diplomatic visit uh, between France and Persia, uh, right before Montesquieu comes out with his Persian letters. So the visit's 1715, Montesquieu comes out with his book in 1721. And in fact, Montesquieu refers to this diplomatic visit right away in his book. I mean, it's in there, there's some famous quotes, definitely influenced him. So diplomatic encounters became an important source. Mm -hmm. They were completely ignored when I started this project. Now there's a good group of historians working on diplomatic encounters. They were ignored because nothing really happens, right? Uh, This ambassador goes to Louis XIV and there's no treaty signed. Nothing happens. It looks like a complete disaster, right? So why study it? But in fact, what happens is, is we see that this diplomatic encounter had great political significance and cultural significance for uh, especially France, but Persia as well. And then um, around this diplomatic encounter, there's a great deal of material culture, mm-hmm. beautiful engravings, which I include in the book of this visit, and paintings. And then if you examine 
the actual engravings, we see all this material culture that he's surrounded with, as I mentioned before, coffee, and he's in his bathtub, and he's in these embroidered cloths and these certain clothes. And um, I uh, was pushed by art historians to examine those further, mm-hmm. and um, which was really fun and interesting and led to a, a lot. Um, and then uh, besides that, uh, literary sources, fairy tales, and translations were an important source in the relationship between France and Persia. So I kind of had to feel around and put together and use a variety of different methods uh, to uh, get at the story of of the French relationship with Persia. Would you say, Susan, and this is not, <laughs> I'm not asking this question from a critical place at all. I just want to be real clear about it when I say, ask it. Would you say that the book is really centered around like how the French work through, deal with, represent Persia? Like does, does the Persian perspective find its way into the project here in, in ways that you would want to signal? Yes. Yeah, that's a really good question. So it was important to me to try to get at that perspective. Mm. Now, the problem is there's really no sources in Persian um, on any of these events in the the 17th Mm. century. And um, I consulted with historians of um, Iran, of Safavid Persia, and they rely mostly on these uh, European travel texts and sources, because um, right as the book concludes, right that the Safavid Empire collapses, right, right? Um, and I talk about that at the end of the book. And in this collapse, everything is destroyed, including a lot of records, mm. right? So we don't have those. But um, it, I was trying to get at the perspective in, especially in the diplomatic chapters, um, and try to see, you know, what were the Persians thinking or doing about the French, right? And I think this comes out really well with the visit of the Persian ambassador, where, you know, if you read the story of the visit, which is written by a French courtier, the Baron de Breteuil, he, you know, it looks like this ambassador is just a madman. You know, he's just angry all the time. He has this Orientalist fierce temper. He won't do anything they want. He's just this difficult, temperamental guy. But, you know, is that really fair or true is what I was thinking. And so when I analyzed it further, you know, and I, I looked at when does he throw these temperaments or temper tantrums and or so-called ones, right? And they're act, they actually occur when he does not want to bend to the French, like when he doesn't want to stand uh, to greet them when he doesn't want to abide by their protocol. And this signaled to me a battle over precedence, a battle over, you know, who is the superior empire, mm. right? And not about anything else. And it's so, I, it, and this happened over and over where uh, you could read it as Orientalist, right? That these uh, French courtiers just see this ambassador as this Orientalist, Oriental temperamental guy. But actually what they're doing is they're masking a fight over precedence that the Persian uh, ambassador wants to be respected and as well received. And he wants, he believes his empire to be the superior one mm-hmm. and doesn't want to bend to the French. So I try to find ways of 
you know, looking at how uh, the Persians would receive the French, you know, the, the Persians who see themselves as, uh, you know, a great empire, right? Isfahan was half the world, right, in the 17th century. You know, when they go to a small kingdom like France, do they want to bow to the king? Do they want to stand for, you know, would they, they would think this is disrespectful, right, to have them act this way. It makes perfect sense. I really like that a small kingdom like France, because yeah, I think especially as a French historian, I mean, <laughs> it's always important for me to remember that I work on this, like in my, in my, um, you know, psychic terrain map of the world, France is this enormous entity. And to, to have that kind of um, perspective shifted or corrected is real important, I think. So um, thank you, 17th, uh, 17th and 18th century Persians for that. <laughs> Yeah, this was important um, for me too, to just realizing when you read about the Safavid Empire, how important it was, um, you know, in the Middle East, in the early modern world, and how, you know, insignificant Louis XIV really in some ways was <laughs> to him, you know, and we forget that. Let's talk a little bit, Susan, about the structure of the book and how you, you know, there's a chronological flow to this book, but there's also kind of emphasis on different themes and different chapters and different incidents. So could you talk a little bit about how that came together for you and, and what was obvious about that? What was difficult about that making those decisions? Yeah, it was difficult to make those decisions. Um, but right, it started, my project started, as I said, with this um, uh, visit of 1715, right at the end of Louis XIV's reign. And then I went backward from that. So it did start chronological. But then, as I said, as I uh, found all these different facets, right, and angles, the diplomatic angle, the material culture, things became more complex. So I tried to weave together the chronological with um, the different themes. So um, Sometimes it didn't always work exactly chronologically because of, of the lumping of the themes. But so I do start with um, chronologically in the early 17th century with the early missionaries and um, uh, the uh, work of John Chardin, the traveler to Persia who wrote these volumes, big volumes on Persia that most people uh, will read if they study Persia. And um, so I started with that and then moved forward through time. But there are points in the book where, for example, in chapter two, where I, I lump the fairy tales with um, 1661 Charles Lebrun's painting. And that's just because um, the fairy tales come at the end, but uh, of the reign in in the early 1700s, right, of Louis XIV's reign. But it, it made sense to me thematically to, to put this painting in with um, the fairy tales and translations. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Maybe we can sort of talk about that a little bit. We're kind of jumping around in the chapters, but that's okay. We've already talked about a few of them. So we'll, we'll just kind of move around that way if that's okay with you. So that first chapter that, you know, looks at missionary documents, travel, and that specific case of Jean Chardin. But then the second chapter, you mentioning it just now makes me want to ask you about, you know, the negotiation for you as a researcher and a writer between I, I want to not use oversimplified language, but I want to say things like representations and reality or right. fiction and, right. you know, polit- but I know, I mean, it's not how I work. I don't have a solid divide between those two things, but there is something here in, in, in the materials that you're working with, uh, working with art, working with literature, and then kind of looking at diplomatic, political, state, craft type things. How do you think about the relationship between those different sources and how you're how you're working with them? Oh yeah, that's a really good question. So um, right, I'm dealing with things like fairy tales, right? Mm-hmm. As you say, that aren't factual. So what I try to do then is pull out what the French were doing with these tales. So one of the big themes of the book is this mix of fact and imagination, Mm. right? So the way the uh, Frenchman put together a Persia, we can say, is a lot of it is just imaginary, right? So as I said before, they imagine Persia as being this civil land of politeness, right? Uh, A place of great monarchy. Um, So A lot of this is not rooted in a firm reality, right? Uh, There are some practical, actual similarities they see, like they both have a hall of mirrors, uh, their kings uh, both wear diamond suits, perhaps, you know. Um, There's some actual practical things um, that seem similar, but what's happening here is they're relating what is particularly French to Persia. So, um, for example, in in chapter two, if we can, if we are talking about that, um, I start with this translation of the Rose Garden, the French translation of the Rose Garden. Now, the Rose Garden is one of the most important pieces of poetry of literature in the Islamic world, mm. and it's translated in the early 17th century. And um, you know, it's not translated word for word or in a literal sense. And the, what it, it is really becomes reminiscent of it once it's translated is the French manuals of politeness. So the Rose Garden is a book of conduct of how to behave. It gives morals, lessons, kind of a guidebook of of, uh, you know, uh, of morality, we can say, right? So the French read it in terms of what they're reading, what's popular, right? And that's these guidebooks of how to be a, a good courtier, right? Or, you know, um, and so um, I feel like, you know, they're, they're kind of adapting these 
works and fictional things to become more like what the French actually are reading at the time, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not true. It's a book of morals, right? It's not going to tell you facts about Persia, but it tells us a lot about what the French are thinking and how they're kind of imagining Persia to be in some way. Mm -hmm. And then you really do, you know, after chapter two, there's this kind of shift. I felt a shift towards the diplomatic, to the emphasis on the, you know, the mission in chapter three on uh, the mission of Pierre-Victor Michel to Persia, and then the Persian embassy to France in 1715. Um, and then that chapter that focuses on um, Mohammed uh, Reza Beg. What, what can you tell us, Susan, about the movement? I mean, you talk about travel at different points in the book, but just when, when the mirror is kind of shifting or, you know, being formed or located like in Persia and in France? And what what's the significance of the travel and, and movement between the two physical places, France and Persia? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. So one of the things that was striking to me is that, so you have these travelers, mm-hmm. right? Like Jean Chardin, who, um, you know, he's, uh, I talk about him in chapter one, but he's the one who kind of lays this basis for this comparison between France and Persia, right? He's um, saying that Persia, he's describing Persia, but he is really, I believe, criticizing the French monarchy, mm. right? And using it as a kind of a mirror of princes genre there, like like in the style of Machiavelli, the prince, right? And um, so he lays this basis. And then um, we have, so this traveler who goes to Persia brings back information, but uses it to criticize France in a very veiled way, right? Which Montesquieu will do later. Then we have... Uh, these diplomats who go back and forth. So it was important to me to use two diplomatic stories, mm. one within France, which is the story of Mohammed Reza Beg in 1715, the Persian ambassador who goes to France mm-hmm. and kind of get that perspective of what the French are thinking with a Persian in their territory, mm-hmm. right? Greeting their king. And then the flip side in the chapter before is the mission sent by the French uh, before that in 1708 um, to Persia, mm-hmm. which fails again with no treaties, no nothing, no trade agreements. But we get an inside look of a French person, this time on Persian, Safavid soil, trying to figure things out and what the Persians think of him, what he thinks of the Persians and how they try to connect and do something, you know, uh, make a treaty, right? So it was important to me to get both sides there. So I don't know if I'm allowed to have a favorite chapter in people's books, but I'm just going to be honest and say that fifth chapter, um, Fashioning the Ambassador, that focuses on images of Mohammed Reza Beg. I really just really enjoyed it. And I especially enjoyed that idea of, I am no early modernist, uh, I could write a book called The Early Modern Mirror, but I there are some ideas and things that I've sort of really latched onto in early modern um, historiography and and fashioning that that notion of fashioning is one of them, and so I'm really intrigued in how you 
kind of bring that sort of methodology and approach to the materials that you're looking at in that chapter, the visual sources, but also the idea that, you know, fashion, it's not just self-fashioning, but it's like, if, you know, there was a literature on self-fashioning, on like intra-European discussions about fashioning, but here we're talking about fashioning and the mirror. So it's actually fashioning, not the other, but this reflection uh, figure culture empire that the French are thinking through. So uh, yeah, I was just wanted to ask you a little bit about how you're using that that way of approaching things that people might be familiar with to extend it to include images and perceptions of, of Persia and this very important figure in your book. Oh, yeah. So that's an excellent question. And it's one of my favorite chapters, too. It caused me great pain and agony, though, I must say. But I'm very happy with it. And it was so fun to work with the engravings and material culture and kind of uh, pushed me away from just pure history and texts, right? Um, And it was difficult, though, because, you know, so I had these beautiful engravings. and I'm like, what do I do with that, you know? And it took a great deal of work to figure out, you know, what he's wearing and what he's drinking and what's around um, him in these in particular images. And so, um, you know, I found certainly certain, uh, we can say, symbols, I think I call them, that constantly appear with the ambassador. Now, I just want to know that I bet nobody saw this ambassador in person, maybe on a parade, right? But very few probably got these good, intimate looks of him, right? So he's um, engraved, you know, in his bathtub in these private moments, smoking his pipe alone in a room, right? Nobody really got to see that. And I don't even think that the engravers necessarily saw him in person doing these things, right? He didn't pose for them. But what I think they did is they drew on a long history of costume books, of, you know, travel engravings like those from Jean uh, Jean Chardin and kind of formed this image of the ambassador, right? And probably took some of the major texts, uh, you know, Louis XIV has his newspaper, write up these fantastic articles about this ambassador and what he's doing and how he's, you know, gracing Louis XIV with his presence, right? So they kind of put together, you know, here's this ambassador wearing these embroidered Persian fabrics, and he has his coffee pot almost always with him. And he has his his, um, smoking water pipe always with him. And in some of the engravings, it's really hysterical because there's sometimes a servant on horseback or even on foot carrying, following him around with this pipe. Like he has to have it all the time, you know. So, you know, the, the pipe, the coffee pot, his clothing always remains the same. He's wearing the same outfit in every one. So it struck me, first of all, some of these uh, uh, symbols um, represent France in many ways, right? So um, in France, people were already wearing, or the elites were at least, this kind of Persian-style jacket, which Louis XIV's uh, people would call the juste au corps, right? So they were already wearing this coat that they had adopted from Persia and the Ottomans and elsewhere, right? So it's familiar to them, as as we said before. Mm. So it symbolizes something to the French that he's an elite, right? He's wearing what, you know, the the high-ranking fashionable 
Frenchmen are, right? He's also drinking coffee, which is very, very elite, right? Only, you know, and there, there's all these images, fantastic images of these um, fashionable French men and women drinking their coffee in these fantastic clothes, right? Um, so he was fashionable. And in many ways, he looks just like those fashion plates of the time of the high-ranking Frenchmen. Mm-hmm. So Louis come up a few times in our conversation so far, Susan, and I, I wanted to zoom in on on Louis the Fourteenth for for a little bit, and especially to sort of think about those last two chapters before the epilogue, the you know connections between the Safavid and Bourbon crowns, and then the absolutist mirror um, to think about how that relationship between Louis and the bag is worked out through all these images and texts and representations that you're looking at, but also, yeah, how the models of statecraft, um, authority, the idea of despotism, these political notions and the, the kind of comparison between the Persian empire and the French crown uh, and the French kingdom kind of come together, especially in that last part of the book where, yeah, what do we learn about, Louis XIV and the French state through a focus on images and representations of Persia and the Persian empire. And what are we specifically, how, you know, what is, what is your, what do you see as your contribution, your book's contribution to our understanding of this age of, of Louis XIV in particular? Um, well, so Louis purposely, deliberately creates this comparison with Persia. And what is really significant to me that um, I think we mentioned a little bit is um, Charles Lebrun's painting in 1661. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, at first, did not know what to do with this painting. We've probably all passed it in Versailles, those of us who visited and thought, okay, great painting, whatever, right? (laughs) But Um, you know, what do we do with this painting, right? So it's such a significant moment um, for Louis XIV. And he opens his reign with this painting. Charles Lebrun Lebrun is hired to paint this moment. And it's right when he is uh, been mistaken by one of Darius's queens, and she's begging for forgiveness, right? So um, you know, he's showing this great clemency and self, um, self, uh, discipline and, uh, being so gracious to them. Okay. So it starts then. And then he ends his reign, as we said, uh, you know, six months after Mohammed Raza Beg's visit in 1715, Louis the 14th dies. Okay. So he opens and closes his reign with Persia. And, um, w- this is a very kind of tense you know, relationship, we can say, right? Because, um, you know, uh, Louis XIV is being criticized as the Grand Turk or the Grand Sultan towards the end of the reign, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so we can say maybe Persia is an, as a solution. You know, he's, he's moving himself away from a relationship with the Ottomans towards Persia. But yet at the same time, Persia represents... Uh, so many similarities to the French, as we said, it, it could be seen as civil, as polite, as a place of luxury. It's fashionable, right? All these different things. But at the same time, you know, it could represent despotism just as well as the Ottomans, right? So um, uh, what 
we see happening then is, you know, they're kind of tippy-toeing when they represent Mohammad Reza Beg, the ambassador, um, and, you know, the audience uh, with Louis XIV about, you know, get away from any notion of despotism. So now, uh, when the Safavids fall in 1721, wait a minute, is that right? 1722, maybe, right around the Persian letters, um, it is kind of a shock, right? And it seems like the, uh, the French had really believed in some ways that Persia was just so sophisticated, while the Ottomans were the ones headed to a great demise, mm. the great despotic country. So the reverse happens. So this is startling, right, to Frenchmen. And we see Voltaire writing in, you know, the 18th century, how could this have happened to mm. the Persians? How did this happen? So what, uh, you know, what we see happening over the course of, this, uh, of the late 17th century into the 18th century is the Safavid shahs become weakened, right? And that is not at all you know, recorded in the ambassador's visit to Louis XIV, right. right? They don't talk about that. But we see that there's a weakening of state, we can say, in, in the Safavid Empire. So um, the, the mirror kind of takes a turn. And also, Louis XIV himself at the end of this reign is just not as popular. He's not the new Alexander as he was in Charles Lebrun's painting, mm. right? When he first meets uh, the Persians in 1661 in that painting, you know, at the end of his reign, he's criticized as a warmonger. Francis suffered great harsh winters. Um, even his own courtiers like Saint-Simon are kind of fed up, right? So, mm-hmm. um, so, you know, it's kind of part of, you know, this hard job of his uh, propaganda team, we can say, right? What do we do with Louis XIV and this Persian bat at the end, right? So uh, so the mirror kind of changes as well is what, you know, as the political, as um, Louis XIV's popularity changes, right? There's, uh, you know, a criticism against his religious intolerance, which is also brought out in the literature on Persia. Mm-hmm. So what we see is Persia fi- uh, is really becomes a way to criticize Louis XIV and also ends up being a strong warning, right? That, you know, look, this is what a weak king who's, you know, uh, really into his luxury and, you know, secluded in his palace far from Paris, we can say this is what's going to happen, right? And we see that the regent and then Louis XV, of course, being accused of... Um, you know, illicit affairs and not paying attention and not working hard on on government, right? Mm -hmm. And things will just keep going downhill from from there. Right, right. As we know. Um, So, Susan, the book closes, the epilogue, you know, closes with this, I guess, in a way, for your process, return to Montesquieu. Like, it's this excavation of everything that comes before, but you know, that's the text that, you know, as you said earlier, it's the one that people, if you know anything about the relationship between France and Persia, that's probably what you know um, in, the, in the early modern period, that, that text, the Persian letters. And so, yeah, I am kind of curious about your own process as an author and a, as a reader of that book and how it gets expressed in, in this book, you know, that after doing all this research, I'm, I'm very fascinated by the idea of how you read the Persian letters now, you know, with all of this 
under your belt, like how that text has changed for you and how, how, how important it is and significant it is to close, to close the book with it. Yeah. So, um, you know, I don't think when reading the Persian letters, people realize that it comes right on the heels of this ambassadorial visit oh. to Louis the Fourteenth, and um, there's one moment in uh, the Persian letters where uh, you know uh, the two Persians say, "Oh, we were there. We saw that um, you know that ambassador come to visit the king, and he was a fraud. He was a fake, and they make fun of it. And it just gives you kind of a glimpse into." After Louis the Fourteenth, right? He's dead, of course, and uh, the ambassador is gone, and the French are just making fun of the whole thing, mm. of the whole show, and this whole comparison, right? And but it's clear to me that Montesquieu drew on that diplomatic meeting, right? And um, so much of what's in the book, uh, you know, is reminiscent of writings and the material culture around. Um, uh, that visit and discussions, right, um, of of luxury and mm-hmm. you know war and all these things Louis the Fourteenth was doing and religious intolerance and you know um, corruption, right, and nobility and all these different issues come up. They, so um, it's clear to me that Mon- Montesquieu, um, I think before, I you know. Um, it, it was just that Montesquieu could have been using any Asian country. Mm. Okay, so I feel like before the reading of Montesquieu, what Persian letters was, it could have been the Ottoman Empire easily because the Orient is one big, the same, mm-hmm. right, to, to Europeans in the early modern period. And I think that that is corrected now, hopefully, that, you know, Montesquieu really used Persia because it was so similar, at least the French thought it was Mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. And it spoke to them in some way. Um, uh, You know, a lot of it is just imaginary, but they did have this, um, this kind of fictional relationship, right, with, with Persia. And um, that shaped them in some way and that Montesquieu can draw on. Um, I don't want to drag you, Susan, into the later 18th century if you don't want to be pulled there <laughs> or even beyond that into the, you know, as somebody who works on the 1960s. Um, but I am kind of curious to know what the afterlife of the relationship that you explore in this book is, if there are things that you want to signal to us about, like, what comes after Montesquieu and what, where does this go? Um, and are there echoes of this early modern relationship in to Persia in the French context in what becomes, you know, the next phase of French colonial empire in relationships to Persia that are ongoing uh, after this? Like, is there an afterlife to the issues and connections that you explore in the book into the later 18th century and you know, 19th, we could stop at the 19th. <laughs> we can keep going, whatever you want to. Yeah. So, on. yeah. So that's a good question. So one of the things that, um, 
also just initially drew me to the project was just, of course, is this fascination with the Ottoman Empire in the 18th century mm-hmm. that uh, we see in in the trends of like Turkery, for example, right? And um, there's a visit of uh, an Ottoman ambassador who visits Louis XIV. And, you know, he is seen as so polite and distinguished. Well, there's two. There's one who's not, but the, uh, there's one who's really just praised, much like we can say the Persian ambassador was, Hmm. except this time in the 18th century now, we see that, yeah, the Ottomans are really take the place of that civil place that Persia was, right? Because Persia had fallen. So we see that this continues kind of, and, you know, there's shifts in how the French view these different countries, right? So um, they go through this period of fascination with the Ottomans, and they're still trying to, in the 18th century, you know, the philosophes like Voltaire I mentioned, they're still trying to figure out what happened, right, to Persia. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to figure out what happened because there's this threat overhanging them, right, that, you know, they have this corrupt monarchy too, right? Um, so th- they're trying to figure out, and there's texts and books written about, um, you know, the end, the demise of uh, the Safavid Empire, and then the turmoil it undergoes. And then there's also great interest in uh, Nader Shah, who's this great conqueror mm. later, and conquer- uh, he has a big, large empire and is compared often to Napoleon in some ways. Mm. Um, so I think that, that what does happen is there is this continued relationship of those civility, even though it falls, where, I mean, th- this idea that France and Persia are connected. So, um, I mean, I don't know why, Roxanne, I can't figure this out. But in my studies of Persian, I was just startled. And, you know, I couldn't understand why do they look to French poetry and use French words and not English, right? Um, Like they say television in in Farsi and not television, right? And, (laughs) And telephone, you know, and French style, French culture is a great influence in Iran. And I think it does come from this moment of this kind of similar monarchy, right? When um, in the 17th century, I I do think that there's something that stays. (laughs) That's that's really interesting. I mean, like I say, as somebody who works on a much later period, I I've picked up on a couple of those little, I mean, I have some friends who speak Farsi and like, you know, you, you pick uh-huh. up on a couple of those kinds of connections uh, in, a, in a much later period. And now I see, uh, I mean, I don't know if I'll reread Montesquieu now or anytime soon, but um, I think about like when you were mentioning some things about the text, my vague recollections of it. I, I yeah, I feel like I would read it completely differently now and, and, yeah. and think about that relationship so differently yeah, I, I just quickly want to add, Roxanne, mm-hmm. that I think that what's really interesting then in teaching Montesquieu now Persian letters after this great exploration is that um, who better um, to criticize the French but people who are most similar mm-hmm. in some way, who can understand them the most. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why Montesquieu picks the Persian characters to do that and not two Chinese men or two, you know, Ottomans, right? right? Because it's the Persians who understand and have the most affinity with the French in their imagination, of course. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and I think your book really gives a a, a really 
clear explanation of why that might be the case that it's not incidental, that it's not random, you know, or that it's not like I just picked these um, so-called oriental figures, um, that it has, that it, there's a much deeper story to to how and why those, that, that figuration might, you know, have been chosen. Well, Susan, we talked about the afterlife of the relationship between uh, France and, and Persia after your book, but what about your future after this book? Uh, I know that this year has been insane. And so without wanting to put undue pressure on you, what are you working on now or thinking about working on next uh, after this, this wonderful book? Well, I'm still involved in some older projects after the pandemic, mm-hmm. right? So um, on Persia, but I am working on a new project and I'm interested really in actually in Africa and images of Africa because um, which sounds really different and, and, you know, like I'm moving in a totally do- new direction. But um, when I was doing my research on Persia and this, this relationship, I found that, um, especially with the diplomatic visits, um, the, the French courtiers were creating categories of, of people. Mm. So um, how when they were deciding how to treat the, uh, the Persian ambassador, you know, they, they compared him to people from other countries. You know, how would we treat an ambassador from Russia? How would we treat one from Africa? You know, we did this for this guy. So should we do the same? Are they equal? Do they deserve the same respect? And I found this very interesting because, you know, this is before colonialism and imperialism, of course, but we see um, what they're doing is they're creating kind of hierarchies of people around the globe mm. and how they should be respected or treated. And this interests me, and I'm, I would like to explore this further. And what I was interested in is I feel like Africa in some ways is in kind of the same arena of Persia as where there's, you know, the positive and the negative, right? So, Sometimes they look up to African monarchy. Sometimes there's negative, com- right? There's all the, but, um, you know, how does it fit? How does Africa fit in with Asia and other parts of the world mm. in terms of, we can say, categories? And how does this kind of influence uh, racial categories later? You know, so I'm kind of looking at, you know, what are what tools are Frenchmen using to differentiate themselves and, you know, who, and doling out respect in some way, we can say. Well, that sounds very exciting. And uh, Susan, I just want to thank you so much for writing this beautiful, fascinating book and for speaking with me about it. Thank you so much, Roxanne, for having me. It was a pleasure. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.